So I'll date myself. I am old enough to remember when Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield was a big, big, anticipated heavyweight bout. And at that time, you could only access it through pay-per-view. And I didn't have that with my mom and I. And so you were kind of waiting until the next day, right? There was no internet. Um, so you were kind of waiting for the next day before you heard about it. And it was such a massive heavyweight fight. And these were two titans going against each other. And, you know, there's a corollary. I mean, certainly UFC has some uh, title bouts that sometimes get uh, amped up in terms of promotion for months and months and months. And you get to this fever pitch because there is something uh, really fascinating about uh, two fighters in kind of the the prime of peak physical and mental condition facing off maybe different styles or different nuances in terms of their fighting history or martial arts training but here they are fighting and although I find it very difficult uh, to watch UFC and those kind of fights even though it's gotten a little bit safer over the last decade, um, I'm still always intrigued to look at the sociology around it, to watch people just be talking about it for months leading up to it, and then it reaches a fever pitch in the final week. Today we're looking at the first of what amounts to a few title fights between Yahweh, Israel's God, and Dagon, the God of the Philistines. This is the first major confrontation that happens in the book of Samuel. We're in a series on the book of Samuel. You can turn there in your Bible. Um, it's also in the sermon notes there. Um, I want to review where we are, though, because it's been a few weeks. We kind of took a break for Christmas, and now we're back moving through the book of 1 Samuel. We're going one chapter a week. 1 Samuel is set about 1,100 years before Jesus. So that's sort of where we are in terms of in relationship to the birth of Jesus. It's during the time of Judges, which is where Israel didn't have a king. They had kind of these military commander legal officers called judges who would rule Israel has been established in the holy land and they've been led there by God God has sought to establish them there so that they can move from a collection of uh, kind of a ragtag group of slaves to become a nation who will be a light to other nations to show God's way to other nations and cause them to turn from their uh, brokenness and wickedness and sinfulness and indifference towards what is good and what is godly and follow along God's path. But the history of God's people during the time of Judges is really tumultuous. And it's actually not one of things getting better and better or the light shining brighter and brighter. It goes through all these cycles of sin and then repenting and then God delivering them. And then they're kind of like, we don't really need God anymore. We'll do our own thing. Thank you very much. And then God sends another neighboring nation or tribe to enslave them and they call out to God and that cycle kind of repeats several times through the book. First Samuel opens up with a story of barrenness around Hannah, just like Israel is barren spiritually. Um, Hannah becomes a symbolic stand-in for Israel, but she's blessed with Samuel. God says, I'm going to give you a son. And that very, very minor light in the darkness is enough to kindle hope for those in, in the immediate um, sort of in the know of what's happened around Hannah. From every point of view, it looks like Israel is stuck in a rut that is 
you, they're not going to be able to get themselves out of it. No one would have been able to look on the horizon of reality and said, oh, I can kind of see how we can get out of this. So much corruption, so much darkness. And it's being spearheaded by the priestly class in Israel, so the spiritual leaders. How is this ever going to be made right? It starts being made right when a barren woman is given the gift of Samuel. Then in chapter 2, we see Samuel being slowly promoted and growing in wisdom. And that comes in contrast to Hophni and Phinehas, who are sons of the high priest Eli, who are wickedly corrupt and use their position in all kinds of destructive and abusive and exploitative ways. Then in chapter 3, God calls Samuel, um, and Samuel then becomes a prophet. He moves into the role of someone who hears messages from God and disperses them to God's people. God's been on radio silence for a long time. So now when Samuel starts prophesying, it says that um, as Samuel grows, he grows up in wisdom and stature, and that God didn't let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground, which is an idiom that means if you had a false prophecy, if you said, oh, God says this, or God's going to do this on this day or whatever, and that doesn't happen, you'd say, oh, like your words fell to the ground. They kind of like, but it never happens with Samuel. God communicates clearly to Samuel. Samuel communicates clearly to Israel, and it happens every time. So his sort of stature grows in the shadow of this corrupt political and religious system. People are kind of shifting away from that and saying, maybe there is hope. Because look at what God is doing in and through Samuel. This one little light in the darkness, but maybe it's enough. In chapter 4, the Philistines fight the Israelites. Um, The Israelites are defeated. Then they have an idea and they say, hey, if we bring the Ark into battle, we'll definitely win. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's like this spiritual, uh, kind of like a super weapon. God would never allow the Ark, which in a sense houses, not just symbolic of his presence, but God reigns on the throne between the cherubim on the Ark. So we're just going to bring this into battle and sort of like auto win. We'll literally... Uh, do like God mode like they have in video games. You can turn on God mode where you can do a game and be impervious to damage. And that's what Israelite, the Israelites are kind of saying. Oh, we'll just flip on God mode. They get routed. The Philistines take the ark. Hophni and Phinehas, those two corrupt sons of Eli, die. Eli finds out about it. He falls over and dies. Eli's daughter-in-law has a baby, dies in childbirth, but before that names the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. So chapter four is this cascading sort of bad news on the surface, but what you realize is, oh, it's coming back to what God said earlier he was going to do, which is he's going to bring judgment against the house of Eli and the priestly class because they have forfeited his ways. They haven't in any way attempted to lead with integrity and care as good shepherds to God's people. So in chapter 4, you see this house cleaning of the religious elite. And remember, at this time, the religious elite are the top of the pyramid. There's no other um, institution or structure in society that could hold them accountable. So God is doing it. The glory has departed. The glory of Eli's house is being brought to ruin as Samuel's reputation and influence rises and the literal glory of Israel, the ark has departed. It's been lost. And so chapter four ends on this really, really 
uh, significant narrative cliffhanger. Like if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, what? Like what's going to happen? Like did the Philistines just like capture God? And like what's going to happen now? Because now they have the ark and Israel's been routed twice and God didn't come to Israel's rescue and he allowed himself to be captured. So how is this going to turn out anyway redemptive or good? And then in chapter 5, we realize what God has been designing to do all along. God has been designing to put himself in a situation where he gets to face off against the, not just the Philistines, but their representative God, Dagon, one-on-one. And he's going into their territory. And he's saying, I got a, I got a score to settle against this, this enemy of mine. And I'm going to fight him. I'll give him all the advantages. I'll go on his home turf. And this is what we see play out in 1 Samuel 5. After the Philistines had captured the ark, verse 1, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashid. And there they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. So this is actually part of settling an old grudge for the Philistines. About 40 years before this, a guy named Samson. Anybody ever heard of Samson? guy with the hair and the muscles. He kills hundreds, maybe thousands of Philistines in a final act of death-bringing, pillar-smashing strength. The Philistines nursed this grudge against the Israelites because Samson was a judge. So now this is sort of like the next chapter of, oh yeah, we're, we're paying back Israel for what they've done. They place the ark in the temple beside Dagon. So there's a statue, there's an idol, literal idol there in the temple. They place the ark beside it as a symbol of subservience. So now Israel's God is going to serve Dagon. This is symbolic psychological warfare. This is saying our God is obviously bigger than your God. They, be- they would have believed in many gods and they probably would have said, oh, Israel's God is probably real. They've heard about the stories of God's deliverance in Egypt, but he's not like the God of God or the Lord of Lords. Like our God is in the top of the power pyramid. So your God's real, but he serves our God. And the Philistines, therefore, have a claim that Israel should serve them. Verse 3, when, when the people of Ashad rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So people leave it. They go into the temple the next day to worship. And the ark is there. And then the idol of Dagon is face down in this symbolic prostration of submission before the Ark of the Covenant. Um, One commentator says the actual master stroke of this narrative is in the next line where it says, then they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. And that is meant to be understood and read as a punchline. I'll also date myself. um, Gail, do you want to put up the picture of the old lady. I want to see if anyone remembers this. You remember this? I've fallen and I can't get up. Remember those commercials? And the infomercials for the medic alert bracelet? This is a parallel to what is being uh, communicated in this passage. Dagon's fallen. He can't get up. He needs his people to like put him back in his place. And there, there's an even play on the words there, right? Because you can say put him back in his place in the terms of like set him where he was set before. But there's also a when you put someone in their place, you let them know where they actually stand 
in the, in the hierarchy of reality and structure of reality. And it works on both levels. Dagon's being put back in his located place, but he's also being put back in his place. Because what kind of a God needs their own people to stoop down and lift them up after they've fallen? What God is so weak that they can't stand up? Verse 4, the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Gail, can we go to the next slide? So same posture, but now Dagon has his head and hands removed. And that's significant because that's a symbol of military victory. One of the ways you tracked how many from the opposing army you killed is that you brought back or counted hands, you cut off hands or heads. That was a way of making sure you knew if we were facing 5,000 soldiers, we know we got 2,700 of them. And so this is not in any way coincidental or accidental. This is God sending a very clear message. Not only, first attack, not only is Dagon not in charge, I'm in charge, on the second time, it's like I've defeated Dagon. He is impotent before me. I have conquered him like an army rides out to war against another enemy. So on, a, on, a, on the A side and the B side, God is reinforcing who's actually in charge, who is the God of gods. It's a posture of humiliation. Often soldiers, when their hands were cut off, they would be paraded through the streets um, as a way of saying, look how the mighty have fallen, in a sense. And that's what Yahweh, Israel's God, and when I say Yahweh, that's a specific name for God coming from uh, the Old Testament. And so in your Bibles, when you see the word Lord capitalized, like L-O-R-D, all in capitals, that's a translation of, of Yahweh almost all the time. So when I say Yahweh, I'm talking about God, but I don't want to say God in case that's too vague and wide. Yahweh, Israel's God, the God who has revealed himself through Scripture. So this is kind of a knockout against Dagon, and it's happening on his home turf. So verse 5, that is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashod step on the threshold. So this has titanic psychological effects on the Philistines such that they never step on the threshold. They always go over it moving forward. So there's a humiliation. There's a defeat of Dagon and it casts a really, really long shadow over the rest of Philistine history. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. So Dagon's proven to be powerless. He's had his hands cut off, but the Lord's hands are in place and they are heavy against the Philistines and the people. So there's this dramatic contrast between, again, the impotence of Dagon to protect himself and to protect his own people and Yahweh's hands in place, secure, full of power, moving against the enemies of God. Verse 7, when the people of Ashad saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and they said, 
what should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, have the ark of the God move to Gath. So if we pull up this uh, thing, so we had the, that question mark is where Ebenezer as a city was. We're not exactly sure. First, it gets moved to um, uh, Ashdad. Then they say, hey, let's move it to Gath. Um, there were five Philistine strongholds. They're revolting in Ashdod. And they're saying, we can't handle this. What do we do with it? And they're like, okay, let's just bump it over to the other fortification. So they move the ark of God. Sorry, they move the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing, in, throwing it into a great pan, panic. And he afflicted the people of that city, whether young or old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And so you can see Ekron is just directly north of Gad. So again, this is meant to be read in an ancient context with a, a bit of wry humor, right? We're, we're kind of getting this like hot potato vibe. I don't want it. You want it? I don't want it. You, you take it. Let's pass it over here. I don't want it. I'll keep going. They realize they're in over their heads and they keep trying to pass the buck to someone else. But wherever the ark goes, the hand of God is strong against the Philistines. As the ark of God is entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought the ark of God of Israel around us to kill us and our people. Now there's kind of like internal strife. They're like, don't put that on us. The only reason you would want that thing in our city is that you want to kill us or make us miserable. No, we're not having it. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and they said, send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. To me, this is an amazing story because at the end of chapter four, the narrative flow and momentum is set up for you to expect more doom and gloom for Israel. The ark has been captured. The Philistines have it. Israel's been routed twice. But God flips the script completely on its head. Just when you think you can anticipate, uh, this, this is brutal, but I kind of see where it's going. God steps in. And does a complete 180 with the negative momentum without involving a single Israelite. Not one soldier. God takes on the Philistines and their God solo. This is like Rambo going into enemy territory all by his lonesome one-man army. So I have two short reflections on the implications and applications of this text, but I did want to throw it open so that we can kind of draw from the collective wisdom here. Um, what's a lesson you think we can learn from a text like this? This is an old, ancient text about gods fighting in weird, strange ways and in temples and in idolatry and territorialism. It can seem very far removed from our reality, but what's just one thing you think modern believers could take from a story like this just one thing don't put your faith in symbols don't put your faith in idols and an idol isn't just an actual concrete um, manifestation of a deity's presence an idol as you see scripture unfold is anything 
that we say, yeah, God's part of my life, God's part of reality and stuff, but this thing is actually more important than God. You know you're in idolatry when you're doing what the Philistines did, which is, I'm happy to have God in my life, but God's going to bow down to this thing in my life. I'm not rejecting God, but God is God has to serve my view of sex, my view of success, my hopes and dreams, my, my whatever it is. Something trumps God on the hierarchy of significance and importance, and that's idolatry. And yeah, the not-so-subtle <laughs> hint here is that God will, not may, God will not suffer to be treated as an idol or a trinket in, in our lives. Any other thoughts on what we can learn from a passage like this? Yeah, ascribe to the Lord His glo- glory and strength. Yeah, we serve a powerful God. You know, I, in the last year, I've been doing a lot of work, and I think it's come from a good place. I was looking at the challenges before me, before us as a church, and uh, before churches in Canada, and saying, how do we rise to this? And I'm trying to read books and articles and think through strategies. And this was a good counter to that, because I think there's a responsibility that I have to do that, but I must never remember, God doesn't need me to do anything consequential in this life. God doesn't need us to do anything consequential. He can take on whatever enemies are out there on his own. We just get the privilege of being invited in to his army. But he does not need us. I don't have to carry the burden of trying to defeat this enemy. God can do it all on his own. His hand is powerful. And when it moves, there are no forces that can thwart it. Even when Christians talk about the enemy or Satan, we're not talking about a being that has like equal footing with God. We're talking about God and then a created creature that is nipping at the heels. But God, when He wants to do something, He will do whatever He wants. He is sovereign and powerful. And I think that's probably one of the key implications of this text. Number one is that God is sovereign and He can't be manipulated or controlled. I was really impacted by a commentary or reflection by Eugene Peterson who had a, uh, an encapsulation of the nature of Israel and the Philistines' idolatry that I thought was, oh, was super brilliant. And I'm still thinking about it. It's, it's going to challenge a lot of my thinking in a lot of ways this year. He says, the Israelites had to learn this first and then the Philistines have to learn it. The living God can't be used manipulated, or managed. Exodus has told this story. When God delivers his people, God is not at his people's disposal. God is not, and this is where I think is a helpful term, God is not a spiritual technology for you to leverage for your own ends. And that one hit me. Because I'm like, I have a lot of technology that I use to make what? Like, what's the point of technology? an advancement, in an innovation at a pretty high level. What's the point? Make life easier. Make my life easier. Make my life better. Increase ease. Expand capacity or power. I can just look things, anything I want. I I have knowledge acquisition that wasn't available to any other human being before 15 years ago. Technology offers a promise and sometimes it delivers. 
a tremendous amount of ease into our lives. But do you see how it can be tempting to think of God in the same way? Oh, God exists so that if I learn to say the right prayers, do the right things, if I learned whatever the secrets are to spiritual manipulation, then God will serve me and my purposes. And Eugene Peterson says, spiritual power is not a matter of getting our hands on the right method or the right technology. The personal God can't be reduced to an impersonal power. And if you attempt that, you will be judged by the living God because God will not tolerate that kind of blasphemous behavior. God isn't our pet. He's not our accessory. He's not a technology that hangs at the corner of our lives. And when we need this to happen, we open the cupboard, pull out God, say, okay, God, do your thing. Oh yeah, right. I got to say the prayer. I'm going to fast. I'm going to do something. Okay. But anyways, awesome. My life has become uneasy. It's become challenging. So could you fix that? Powerful, powerful lesson here. Especially if you swim in circles that are more defined by kind of a new age spirituality. Because a new age conception of God is very much like God or the universe or the power, whatever consciousness is kind of a technology that you can tap into and then manipulate and leverage for your own gain and ultimately to leverage for your own journey into awareness that you are somehow divine. And the scripture presents a God who's very different, who loves us, who's imminently present in our lives in a lot of ways, but God is also transcendent. And you can't pull this God's strings. And while God will often advance our agenda when it's rooted in honoring Him and wanting to bless and serve other people, He doesn't exist to serve our agenda. doesn't exist to serve my agenda, the agenda of my family, this church. He exists to forward His kingdom mission. And that's important to remember so that we are always in the position where we're saying, oh yeah, your will be done. Your kingdom come in my life. This is what I'd like to have happen, God. This is what I'm praying for, but your will be done. You answer these prayers in your best way. And I trust that you will answer them in your best way. We don't approach, and we should never approach God as a kind of technology that we get to leverage for our own gain. He is sovereign. He's the most important thing. And what that means when it comes down to it is if, if God were to never make our life actually any easier, the side of heaven, that wouldn't be a failure on his part. Like That wouldn't be like, a, oh, well, you said. Um, God will bless us in all kinds of amazing ways. But we have to understand that comes out of God's goodness, not out of his obligation to do that because we go to church every Sunday or we do this or we are just rocking our personal devotions. All of these things that we do are to nurture a heart space where we stay connected to God and wanting to love and serve Him. Not to accrue a certain amount of leverage to say to God, well, God, you better do this for me because look at all the Bible verses I memorized last year. Look how much money I'm giving. I'm not saying there has to be like a direct return on investment, but I'm saying if I'm going to give that much, if I'm going to make these kind of sacrifices... We have to be very careful that we don't interact with God like that. 
And lastly, um, I know I'm going long here, so I'll make this short, but it, it's kind of hidden in plain sight. Notice the meta theme of this verse, or sorry, of this chapter, God overturns defeat himself. It's not God and Israel overturning their enemy, defeating their, it's just God himself. And that's a direct window into the gospel. Because we don't talk about Jesus and all of these other people going to the cross and they died for our sins and they kind of helped. And then one person goes to the cross. One person dies. One person goes and faces the heart of sin and death and evil. One. And it's not an Israelite. It's not one of God's people. It's God himself. God fights the ultimate battle against the enemies of sin and death and the devil on their turf. He comes here, makes himself nothing, takes on the form of a servant and overcomes evil. And then in the resurrection, who like helps Jesus resurrect? Like what's the person? Which of the apostles are like, oh, we were almost there and then I just had to like say this prayer and then Jesus, no. Now I know if you're like, Scriptural scholars are going to say, wait a second, the Bible talks about the Father and the Spirit and the Son all playing a part of the resurrection. Yeah, but it's all still God. There's no human help. God goes into the heart of darkness, defeats the enemy, and then resurrects and conquers the power of sin and death. The ultimate Dagon, as it were, all by himself. Cuts the head off, cuts the hands off, and then says to his people, come and follow me. Come and follow me. I am victorious. I am the King of Kings. I am the Lord of Lords. I am the resurrection and the life. We serve a powerful God. We serve a good God who defeats our collective enemy all on his own and then invites us to live into that reality. There is no power higher than God There's no priority greater than saying, God, I don't know exactly what it means, but I want to give you my life. But that's where this passage leads us to, the foot of the cross in an empty tomb where a resurrected God brings his enemies to naught and then invites us to follow, to experience his power, his mighty hand of power in this life and then for all eternity. Let's pray. God, may this chapter do a work in our hearts may we be a people that our eyes and hearts are open to just how awesome you are and may we celebrate and exalt your power and glory above every name above um, every power in heaven and on earth we declare that you are the king and our response is to follow you into that new life. Give us grace to do it, God. Amen.